Every year around the world, millions of people are leaving their homes to seek security and a better life. While this is a difficult decision for any individual, migration has also a wider impact at the global scale. It affects societies economically, socially, culturally, and not the least, politically. This podcast investigates the consequences of migration for the Eurasian development. The series of talks leads up to our online Alexandri conference organized in October. My name is Katalin Mikroshi. Welcome aboard. The subject of migration has been targeted increasingly by populists. What has made our societies receptive for anti-migration sentiments? What does this kind of populism tell about us, about the general atmosphere in our societies? I will discuss these questions and more with a young and bright scholar of the University of Helsinki. Come and meet Marina Vulovic. Yeah, okay, let's start. So, Marina, uh, thank you for accepting my invitation. First, let's talk about your research. What do you do? Thanks for inviting me, Katalin. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm a PhD candidate currently at the University of Helsinki. I have just yesterday submitted my thesis for printing. So <laughs> hopefully, um, yes, I can defend it on the 23rd of June. And um, I do research on um, Serbia and Kosovo relations. So that's my main focus. And specifically, um, I focus on Serbia and Serbian politics as kind of like a wider frame and even more broadly, the Western Balkans. So I focus on uh, political discourse, mainly on populism um, and things like that. So that's basically my, my research in a nutshell. Okay. So, and I know that you, you have a very innovative uh, way uh, approaching populism. My first question concerns the changes in the political language regarding migration, especially. So mm-hmm. if we go back in time to 2015, the one event that got the most extensive media coverage was the so-called migration crisis. Yes. And it seems that this phenomenon had a profound impact on the use of language, on the vocabulary, on the expressions. So how do you see this transformation? Or is this just you know, a misunderstanding that linguistic turn has happened much earlier, gradually, and it just resurfaced in 2015. How do you see this situation? Yeah, um, I I think that's a really interesting question and one that uh, certainly um, all research that, you know, deals with with, uh, political rhetoric currently uh, would be interested to answer. And um, it's also an ongoing debate that you know, has been ongoing for a while now, for some years, whether, you know, uh, populism is is something that is, that, that has kind of some specific content that is reproduced over and over again by politicians, or whether it's more or less like a principle or a form of language, so to speak. And so we have uh, these debates currently that um, identify populism as a 
kind of rhetorical style as a way of speaking and, and kind of doing politics in that manner. So if, you know, populism is understood in that aspect, I would say that the migration crisis certainly was one of those moments that would heighten the production of such language because um, populism is more or less built on uh, having these oppositions being established in language between us and them. And so this them can, of course, be shifting in, in you know, relation to what is currently uh, being debated in politics. So if, you know, in a specific political discourse, I don't know, jobs are debated or there is a particularly precarious economic situation, then, of course, the other, uh, this other uh, kind of towards which we are kind of establishing our uh, own identity is uh, changing in that manner. And so with the migration crisis, this other can then be also migrants who, you know, in these populist discourses, who would then come to Europe and, I don't know, take away jobs or, you know, um, uh, take over culturally the whole of Europe, etc. So there are many of, these, many of these discourses that portray migrants as, as the other. And I would say in that aspect, um, if one understands populism as a style or as a principle of doing politics, then uh, I would say it's nothing novel. So it has been going on for, for you know, ages, <laughs> basically since we have uh, political rhetoric or since we have started uh, engaging in, in political debates. Um, and even if one looks, for instance, back at the um, you know, 1990s and at the crisis that basically occurred after the well, during the, the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, specifically uh, during the Bosnian war in 1992 and 1993, where basically Germany had about, you know, half a million to a million Bosnian refugees. Even back then, there was a specific type of rhetoric that was going on that, you know, established the migrants as those who were only like temporarily kind of being... Uh, tolerated in German society. So there was this idea that they would at some point leave Germany. And through that, you know, the, it, there was not like a, an invitation for them to actually stay there and, and be integrated. And after the war ended, uh, about, I think, 300,000 Bosnian uh, refugees back then were just repatriated. So basically forcefully removed from Germany. So I think the very fact that that has occurred um, also speaks to this kind of polarizing logic of populism as well. So there's always this need to establish kind of clear boundaries between us and them and migrants being a clear them that kind of just comes from outside into any country. Uh, you know, they lend themselves really easily to be uh, instrumentalized for such types of rhetoric. And I think it's really not surprising that that has also happened in 2015, uh, specifically in some, you know, Eastern European countries such as Hungary. I think Hungary would be kind of the best case to actually kind of trace this type of rhetoric there. Okay, so this is a kind of misrepresentation and misunderstanding that due to the, the Yugoslavian war, refugees were 
dealt in a different fashion than today's migrants. So it is just, we don't remember, right? (laughs) (laughs) History in in the West, because it was really a a surprise to hear that uh, already in the 1990s, the the same uh, linguistic patterns appeared. Perhaps it is always, uh, it has been always so, Uh, even though after the Second World War, there were a huge migration crisis or refugee crisis or after the First World War. Uh, So it was always a kind of question that how you address identity and all those who are coming into a society. But it's interesting that it is now reframed as populism. So it is a kind of new interpretation what's going on on the linguistic field. I would like to move on from this very general topic and zoom Mm. into this culturally and historically and politically particular area. Uh, You are an area specialist uh, of the Western Balkans. And of course, as as we just mentioned, the the Western Balkans was the one most important uh, route in in, at least in in the first phase of migration crisis back in 2015. But if you look at the Western Balkan linguistic field or, or, or rhetorical field, is this populism different than everyone else in, in Europe? And since your expertise is particularly on Serbia and Kosovo and the relation between them, if you compare these two countries, uh, what are the similarities or differences regarding the form of speech addressing migration? I'd say that for Serbia, if I start with Serbia and then move on to Kosovo, because I think there's much more to be said about Serbia than about Kosovo, since, as you mentioned, in 2015, um, the whole Balkan route went through Serbia primarily. And only after that, after the main route was closed, there were some diverging paths emerging through other countries as well, and only really marginally through Kosovo. So Kosovo didn't really have, uh, historically, so starting from 2015, a huge influx of, of migrants, nor had to deal with a huge influx of migrants institutionally, such as Serbia had. And so um, for Serbia, one always has to see kind of any type of development politically in Serbia against the background of the current regime and how they are kind of through kind of a more or less authoritarian style of governing handling all of these issues. And so what, for instance, one would recognize as a you know populist othering of migrants in Hungary, this type of othering didn't really occur in Serbia because um, the regime, yes, it's really surprising, (laughs) but uh, the regime actually back then wanted to appear more European uh, (laughs) due to the fact that, of course, uh, all of these migrants, uh, you know, wanted to come to Western Europe primarily. So in Serbia, because they knew that none of these migrants would actually want to stay in Serbia, they were just registered as migrants in transit, as, you know, potential asylum seekers that would, you know, have this um, intention to seek for asylum somewhere else in Europe. And so Serbia has kind of positioned itself as this kind of transitory country. And all of the migrants uh, that, you know, came through, through Serbia Back uh, in 2015, which, you know, had a huge influx of migrants back then, almost none of them stayed in Serbia. So they all, you know, while the route was open, they were all, you know, kind of allowed to proceed either to the Hungarian border before it was closed and then through the Croatian border, through the Bosnian border, etc. 
And so I'd say in Serbia, this type of rhetoric uh, was kind of missing because, as I said, the regime wanted to present this something, you know, kind of a, a pinnacle of, of achievement of the current regime to be able to humanely treat those migrants and to kind of uh, be in good graces with, with the West, which was also recognized by the West. So Angela Merkel, you know, valued this approach of Serbia. And so uh, for Serbia, it was actually kind of a, a political win in that aspect. And they also received a lot of uh, monetary aid from the European Union to handle the migrant influx. Um, but on the other hand, a bit of kind of populist rhetoric could be recognized in the way Serbia and Croatia had been dealing with the issue of migrants. And so uh, in 2015, especially when basically Serbia was receiving a few thousands of migrants a day, uh, they would just, you know, let them pass through their territory towards the Hungarian border, towards the Croatian border, and when Hungary closed the border, all of them, you know, went to Croatia. And so the Croatian prime minister basically voiced concerns that that might, uh, you know, jeopardize the current stability of Croatia and that Serbia should spread them out a bit. <laughs> so it's basically the words that he used. They should actually spread them out a bit and send them a bit to Hungary, uh, which Serbia, of course, couldn't do. Um, and so uh, this basically resulted in a, let's say, trade war where uh, the whole kind of uh, borders between Serbia and Croatia were closed for about a week or two, after which, you know, Angela Merkel voiced the concerns that the migration crisis could, you know, result in another war in the Balkans. So there was like a whole kind of scenario created there of, you know, potential crisis and eruption of, of even armed conflict, uh, which I thought was kind of um, a really well illustration of how the migrant crisis can be used to kind of re-articulate these political um, otherings between Serbia and Croatia, who have been also like historically used to this type of rhetoric about the other. So uh, Croatia has often, you know, um, blamed Serbia for, for many issues in the past, and then Serbia as well, Croatia for many issues of the, in the past. So kind of the migrant crisis was just another illustration to kind of heighten these animosities uh, between those two countries. And then, um, in terms of Kosovo, as I said, it's not really a huge issue for Kosovo currently. And to be honest, there are also not many figures one can find on that. For instance, how many refugees currently do reside in Kosovo? I know that there are three government-sponsored kind of refugee shelters for migrants coming from, from outside of, of the Balkans, primarily from the Middle East. Um, but, you know, Kosovo also has to, to be seen in light of its current economic development and in, in light of its current kind of own migration crisis that it's experiencing because many uh, people of, uh, you know, Kosovo nationality um, go from Kosovo to Western Europe to seek a better life. And uh, many have done it before the refugee crisis of 2015 through asylum. And so uh, this influx of migrants has, of course, created for Kosovo additional, you know, um, uh, problems in that aspect that, you know, anybody coming from Kosovo and claiming asylum in Europe was not considered asylum worthy, quote unquote. And so they were just sent back because Kosovo is also considered as one of the, quote unquote, safe countries uh, in terms of the European Union framework. So everybody would be just sent back there. Um, but uh, yeah, to maybe continue on that, um, what is also interesting about this whole kind of case of, of Serbia and Kosovo is kind of religious differences as well. And so I'd say for 
Serbia, there was one case where um, many migrants had been placed on uh, the border towards Bosnia uh, in Banja Kovilača, which uh, kind of currently or today uh, harbors many former Serbian uh, refugees from the Bosnian war who had fled the conflict back then. And so when this whole uh, migration crisis started in 2015, uh, Serbia had built a refugee center there um, in Banja Kovilača. And basically the number of um, refugees that came to Banja Kovilača was almost as high as the number of the domestic population. And so there were many protests back then uh, regarding this. Um, And uh, one interesting aspect about it is that the Serbian government never really used terms such as asylum seekers in a negative connotation. They had always and consistently used the term refugees. And, you know, Serbia was back then presented as this host country that knew what refugees were because, you know, 20 years ago only we had our own refugees coming from all the neighboring countries of ex-Yugoslavia. So they wanted to present themselves as this kind of humane population. And then Banja Kovilača, where protests emerged against uh, the uh, refugees that were placed there by the government kind of destabilized this nice image that the government had presented towards the outer world. And of course, what the government did is just completely suppress uh, any critical voices. And so in Serbia, we have a media landscape that is predominantly uh, owned by people and businessmen who are very close to the government. And so whatever the government might want to present as politically relevant or as politically true, quote unquote, uh, they would you know, place such Uh, narratives through this uh, dominated media and basically suppress any political uh, kind of opposition that might occur there. Another way to solve this issue is because Serbia is run as a semi-authoritarian state, so to speak. Um, These refugees were because they noticed that it would maybe result in some uh, turbulence in some areas where, you know, there was a disproportionate amount of refugees versus the domestic population. They just decided to build other refugee centers somewhere where they thought that such domestic turmoil would not occur. And so they built a new refugee center around Sanjak in Novi Pazar, which is a predominantly Muslim populated area. And this is interesting because uh, when these migrants were placed there from, you know, these previously Serb-populated area into uh, predominantly or Serb-Orthodox-populated areas into predominantly Muslim-populated areas. Uh, generally, there were no protests. So in Novi Pazar and Sanjak, there were no political protests in that manner. And I think there were also some studies done to kind of see whether integration was easier in these Muslim-majority areas. And apparently that was so. And so I'd say, you know, this, this reach of the government, uh, which is almost, you know, infinite in Serbia, to basically uh, position themselves in the political field the way they see fit and the way they would, you know, deem would benefit them most politically is really what kind of colored uh, Serbia's response to the refugee crisis as well. Okay, uh, just a follow-up question. So the, the refugee crisis decreased since 2015. Now, what is the situation today? If, if you look at, uh, yes, there are still 
interestingly, uh, you don't have to have refugees or migrants in order to take advantage of the of the populist rhetoric against them. Yeah. So how is it in, in the Western Balkans? Yeah, so as I said, in Serbia, they, they haven't even been taken advantage of in the beginning because, um, you know, uh, it's not to say that uh, we should trust the government, the Serbian government, when they say we are very humanitarian. It's more, it's more about you know uh, seeing how this whole you know political rhetoric came to came to appear as such. Um, and I'd say it's always easier for a country to claim that they have no problem with migrants if none of those migrants actually want to stay in the country. And so from the beginning, you know, all of these migrants have been registered as migrants in transition, quote unquote, um, as those migrants who would, uh, who kind of, when they entered Serbia, they would declare that they had the intention to seek asylum. And as such, they would gain this legal status of, uh, you know, asylum seekers within Serbia um, within 15 days. Um, it's kind of a time spent that the Serbian government had expected for them to be able to you know, migrate towards the Hungarian or Croatian border, so basically out of Serbia, after which they again became illegal, so to speak. And so many of these migrants are even today in this illegal limbo because they couldn't actually advance within this time span of 15 days uh, towards the, the Croatian or the Hungarian border. Um, and so they actually stayed in Serbia for three years or four years since. Um, and so in Serbia, you know, uh, even though there are a few hundred asylum applications per year, none or only two are always, you know, uh, uh, accepted in Serbia and only for unaccompanied children. So it's, it's not, you know, instrumentalized as a problem in Serbia because in fact, they don't really see it as a problem uh, because as I said, those migrants don't actually want to stay in Serbia. And so I think for them, it's, it's also, for the Serbian government, it's also easier to not instrumentalize them in that manner. But, you know, there are other uh, groups that in Serbia or, or the Western Balkans, you know, where they can get instrumentalized and where a certain type of populist rhetoric is perhaps more recognizable. And those would be always, you know, sexual minorities. Those would always be Roma, Sinti and Roma. Uh, those would always be, you know, in terms of Serbian Kosovo, it's always Kosovo Albanians or it's always Albanians in general. So um, there are these kind of standard scapegoats uh, that that often kind of resurface in, in Serbian political rhetoric. And yeah, currently it's also very polarized so that you have also um, the political opposition being somewhere there on that kind of othering spectrum uh, together with all the other others. Okay, I, I want to go back to these general philosophical questions uh, as, as my final bit. So what do you think? Yes, uh, migration is, is a very suitable topic because it helps uh, polarization of society, of social atmosphere, of the language. Okay, so do you think that populism and especially in regard to this migration uh, business and how it is addressed... Uh, it is a, a kind of feature of our time, or uh, it is just uh, business as usual. We just didn't, you know, take mm. into consideration previously. And uh, what is your estimation? Where are we heading now? 
on the one hand, I really think it's business as usual, because as I said, it's kind of this uh, type of othering has always been present in politics, no matter at which age we, you know, are looking at the political discourse at. But on the other hand, I also think that, you know, some of the transformations that have occurred in our societies in the last couple of years or, or a decade, such as social media, which of course also follows this kind of polarizing logic you have these eco chambers and you have these you know bubbles where where people like to kind of gather and exchange always similar opinions so there is like really rarely occasions where in those eco chambers and social bubbles you can actually um, interact with somebody who uh, might be of a different opinion and so I think the current media landscape definitely exacerbates something that Perhaps, you know, 30 years ago, when we would speak of the Bosnian refugee crisis, wouldn't have been possible in the same uh, manner and to the same kind of extent as it would be today, because it's omnipresent. You know, you have news on your phone, which you look basically at 100 times a day. So it's like a huge influx of information for every single individual, uh, which was perhaps not the case 30 years ago, so in the 1990s. Um, and so I, I definitely think that uh, there are some aspects of this political meaning-making um, around you know, us and others that's uh, timeless, but there are also aspects that are definitely exacerbated through social media and kind of this technological advancements that we have experienced the last maybe decade or so. Um, so yeah, where we are heading, <laughs> I guess, you know, if any political scientist ever tells you that that they know what's going to happen. They're probably lying to you. <laughs> and so uh, I, of course, do not really know what's going to happen. There are so many variables that might might impact on the situation. But let's just say that, um, yeah, I'm not really happy about how currently we are progressing in this manner, especially after 2015. So when the whole Balkan route closed and, you know, many migrants were just left stranded, on the outskirts of Europe, and you have this kind of uh, heightening of this idea of uh, fortress Europe. I really do not like that trend that's noticeable, that trend in, you know, walling off Europe and, yeah, not really recognizing that migration is absolutely necessary for the sustainment of the welfare state in basically any European country nowadays. And so I think that's a major aspect that's perhaps not really heightened in modern discourse in Europe on migration. And I think that should definitely be something that also, you know, academia should perhaps uh, get involved more and, and kind of bring these discussions to the fore, like why migration is actually also necessary for our current societies and not, you know, if one just listens to the news or if one just listens to populist um, demagogues, you would just see it as something absolutely negative. But it's also historically been proven that it's something that migration is something that is absolutely essential for, you know, the economic development and the sustainment of the welfare state anywhere in Europe. And I think Germany is one really, really good example of that. And Germany is currently one of the most economically strong states in the European Union. And I think that's also partly due to migration back in the day, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And, and I, I think that's definitely something that, that also has to kind of from time to time, again, brought to the fore instead of just focusing on migration as something negative. Thank you. This, this is an interesting question because, in a sense, uh, the different perceptions of security collide 
So how you understand uh, what you need for your future society, how you understand uh, in this sense societal security. But thank you, Marina, for your invaluable thoughts. And and I really, really appreciate that you invested the time and energy to this discussion and important topic. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. Really, it was a pleasure to talk about these things.